I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible or one of those pew Bibles that are there in front of you to Romans chapter 1. We began last week a series that will go through the book of Romans. I anticipate it taking somewhere close to a year, although others have taken much, much longer. And there's plenty for us to understand and to grasp from this book. Uh, it is Paul's letter to a church in Rome that he had never seen and never made it to. So he gave them what was of his letters the fullest exposition of the gospel that he could give. And uh, in these opening uh, few paragraphs today, last week's and today's, he's actually doing introductions, you know, typical letter kind of stuff, salutations and who it's from and, and to whom he is writing and what he knows of them, uh, some small talk as it were though significant uh, for us. We come to today, if you saw the title of the sermon in the bulletin, it's based on the, a, a play of words from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem, the, Battle of, uh, uh, the Hymn of Concord, based on the Battle of Concord where he uh, analyzed and reflected upon that first shot that started the Revolutionary War and called it the shot heard around the world because the unfolding a revolutionary war would lead to a great deal of governmental change and other revolutions in the world. And so he saw this first shot having ripples throughout the world. Well, I think the, the, it wouldn't be putting too fine a point on it to say that the paragraph or so that we are studying this morning is one of the most significant paragraphs as far as shaping human history ever written. Uh, it had a huge influence on uh, Augustine, the theologian from Hippo, who helped shape the way the Western world would think for a thousand years. It had a huge impact on Martin Luther, who would uh, be the sort of, at least humanly speaking, the figure responsible for starting the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this passage is very significant in your heritage and in, even in your, uh, the, the secular history of the world it is vitally important. And in it, you get the theme of Romans. In one sense, what we're going to read this morning is the theme, and the rest of the book is simply explaining this paragraph. It is very important. So as we go to read this very important word from God, let us pray and ask for His blessing on our time studying it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask You to make Your Word clear for us. That You would help us read and understand, and, and because these are Your words, be changed by them. We're going to read that the Gospel is the power of God into salvation. So as we read it, make Your power alive and at work in us and bring us to salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray that You would take Your words and hide them in our hearts, that You would lead us toward faith in Christ and toward repentance in His name and toward everlasting life, that Christ would be honored. We pray that You would make Your Word powerful to us. We ask for it according to Your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Romans 1, verse 14. This is God's Word. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's Word. It's completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. Martin Luther uh, became a significant theologian and monk in the early 1500s, late 1400s. But you should know that as a child, he was educated very well by his father, sent to some of the best schools, got some of the best training could get. His father, ambitious, wanted Luther to become a lawyer. And Luther was well on his way toward realizing his father's dreams for him when he was riding a horse and a storm came up and lightning struck the ground pretty close to his horse. Fearing the wrath of God, uh, Luther prayed, well, sort of prayed, help St. Anna and I'll become a monk. That was his prayer. And as a Catholic, you prayed the saint. St. Anna was the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she was the patron saint of equestrians, which I assume is why he called on St. Anna while riding a horse. Well, he survived the storm and felt like he had made a vow that he had to keep. And to his father's great distress, he left training to be a lawyer and went to a monastery, an Augustinian monastery. And Luther was a supreme monk. If He was, you know, the best there was. He understood the law. He'd been trained in it already. And so as he comes to understand the rules of the monastery, he did them without fail. Luther would say of himself later as one who fasted and, and did all the chores of the monastery, he said, if anyone could have gained heaven by being a monk, I would have been among them. He did his work. And, and as a, a, a brilliant mind who understood the law, he applied the same rigors to the Scriptures and to the law of God and to the righteousness of God that he saw there. This holy, great standard. And he saw how high that standard was, how magnificent God was. He saw what God demanded, and he understood it quite well. Here's how you know he couldn't sleep at night. He was terrified by the standard that God showed in the Scriptures, this righteousness revealed in the Bible of God's holy perfections. And he said, I can't do that. He was utterly terrified, constantly working, Slaving away. And what I want you to understand is, if you understood the holy standards of God, that's the right response to be in fear of it. Well, he, was, he knew there was forgiveness for his failings. He wasn't you know, foolish. He knew there was forgiveness. He'd read the Scripture. If someone is, uh, confesses their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And like a lawyer might, he says, well... This is the rule. If I will confess my sins, God will forgive them. And so Luther would spend literally hours with the priest who was acting as confessor of the day, going through his list of sins that he had found. Over and over and over again, he would describe them. And it would take a long time. You can imagine probably other monks waiting outside. Um, Luther in there, we'll, we'll come back. You know, hours he would spend. And it would exhaust the confessor. It got to the point where one of Martin Luther's superiors said, look, Martin, just don't worry about the small sins. Just confess the big ones. But Luther couldn't grasp that. If the only way to get forgiveness was to confess them, in fact, he was terrified that he might miss them. 
something that he was blind to in himself, something that he had just overlooked, and that it would not be forgiven, and he would be short of the righteousness of God. He slaved away until, as a man who was preparing other men for the ministry, teaching in their uh, universities, equivalent to our seminaries, training men for priests, he would teach through Romans and Psalms, and he was a great teacher. People looked up to him. He came into this very passage in Romans, and it's as if the light came on. As if he saw what his heart had been missing. And all of a sudden, Luther went from someone who was burdened by terror to one who was free. You know, the way Bunyan describes Pilgrim, where the burden falls off his shoulders, Luther would have said, yeah, that's the feeling. He found it in this passage. Now, I'm going to hold that as a teaser the message he found was this gospel, this good news. And what I want you to see, this passage where Paul, who already has that same message in mind, the same message of freedom that Luther found, he's got it on his heart, and he says, because I know this message of freedom, I, am, I have this great, big, huge vision for what the gospel can do. We'll call it the scope of the gospel. And, and I have an understanding of the power of the gospel that can come into your lives. We'll look at that. And then we'll look at the nature of this gospel that gives freedom. So before we can get to the nature of it, let's look at the scope. Paul, when he describes this gospel, verse 14, says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And then in verse 16 he says, to the Jew and also to the Greek. That's a pretty expansive idea. Uh, he's writing to Rome, the, the preeminent city in all the world. Rome had uh, great streets, great art, uh, had in some places even you know water brought to buildings. It had the highest of technology. It was the most civilized city in all the world. And, and their vision was to cast that same civilization across the Roman Empire, and they were largely successful uh, building civilized places. Now, as you went out to the extremes of that empire, especially up in Europe, you would see that there was a little bit more of a, a culture that didn't care much about the arts. It didn't care much about the streets and, and the philosophies and things that were popular down in Rome. In fact, they were there building societies trying to survive. And they didn't have time for such finer things. In the HBO TV miniseries, uh, John Adams, uh, Adams, played by Paul Giamatti, has to go to France to try to raise money for the Revolutionary War. He's there with Ben Franklin, who's a bit more of a diplomat, and Adams is more of a, we have a need, we need to get to talking about it. But he, he goes to France, and there he's with this high aristocratic society. They're sitting around a table. Their faces are painted white, their wigs are on, their dress is extravagant. And they look at Adams as something of a, a hick and a, a country bumpkin. And he's wanting to get to the business of saying, you need to help us. We have a common enemy in England. Help us because we're fighting for our lives. And they're asking about, do you like the opera? Do you like dance? What art do you like? Adams finally answers their questions by saying that he can only be concerned with politics now. 
but he's hoping that with his concern for politics, his sons can study philosophy, and their sons can study art and dance. His idea was the priorities work, survival, and then civilization. Well, when the Rome, uh, the Romans looked on those barbarians who were barely surviving, they looked on them as inferiors, less thans, people who needed to be conquered so they could become civilized. They need us. And Paul looked at the barbarians and said, they need the gospel more than they need Rome. They need the gospel and they, they're, they're as worthy of the gospel as you are. And that would have been a hard thing for the Romans to take. But he also says it not just about cultures and civilization, but about intellect. Not just to the wise, but to the foolish. That's who I want the gospel to go to. I want the people who have studied and are educated and are becoming you know, contributors to society, and I want the foolish, the ones who play only to their pleasures and think nothing about tomorrow and become a drain on society, I want the gospel to go to them. And you can imagine that most of the people in Rome who are reading this letter would have put themselves in the wise category. In fact, if I told you there are only two kinds of people, wise and foolish, which are you, you would probably say, I'm in the wise. And if you wouldn't, you'd be thinking it and say, I'm in the foolish because you know you're supposed to be modest. But we we tend to think of ourselves as wise. We look at other people who are less than us in their intellect and we call them the foolish. And we tend to think of ourselves as superior, more deserving. And Paul looks at those who are educated and those who are ignorant and says they need the gospel. And he crosses racial boundaries, the Jew and the Greek. So it's for all races. It's for all intellects. It's for all cultures. We might add, there are probably plenty of categories for us where we feel in the superior category. It's for the responsible and the irresponsible. It's for the person who manages their life and takes care of it and and contributes to society. It's for the person who's a drain on society and who just takes and takes and takes. I want the gospel to go to both of them. It's for the native-born and for the immigrants. It is for, uh, you pick the categories. Paul's idea is the scope of this gospel is that it applies to everyone. It applies to the law-abiding citizen and to the criminal. It's to everyone. And, And really what this gospel says is that you, law abiding citizen, and you criminal, you really need the same thing. You wise person and you foolish person, you really need the same thing. And it's not education. It is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our need. And and, and he says something even stronger. It's not just that it's for them. He says, I'm under obligation to them. I owe it to them. It's a debt that I carry. I have to give the Gospel to them. And for you and me, we're under the same obligation. This is the calling for us to look around and say, who's different? Who is in a place where they're distant from the Gospel? Whether they are different than us culturally, different than us economically, different than us socially, different than us in preferences or culture, we still have an obligation to them. Uh, A really healthy understanding of the gospel says 
I want to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to them. There was a day in our country and in our city, in our state, where if you simply built the church and started meeting, people would come. That day is coming to an end. The day is coming now when the Christians will have to go to them as they did here. And Paul says, get me to Spain, get me to Europe, get me wherever I can go, because everyone who I come across needs this gospel. We're on the same footing. And why did he have so much confidence in this gospel? Why did he think it should go everywhere? Because he knew there was a power associated with it. Listen to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, the grammar is kind of funny here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, we talked about what gospel was. It is good news. It's the announcement. It's a proclamation. It's like posting something up on a bulletin board. Here's the news for today. I have good news today to put on the bulletin board. This news is or equals the power of God to salvation. I want you to ponder that for a moment with me. The good news, announcing this good news about Christ, just the the sheer announcement of it, it is the power of God to bring about salvation. To simply speak what Christ has done and accomplished brings salvation to the people who believe. This is why we spend so much of our service reading the Scriptures and talking about them. We believe that reading the Scriptures and describing what they say about Jesus is what changes you forever. It is what gives you salvation. And salvation, that word in and of itself, is always positive. You don't ever get saved from winning the sweepstakes. You get saved from destruction, from financial peril. You get saved from an illness. You get saved from something bad. And so what is it that you are saved from and to? The Bible's analysis is this. You are saved from spiritual death to spiritual life. I remember, uh, it's it's one of my favorite moments in my lifetime of being an evangelical and an American in those two things. It was when uh, then governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, sort of publicly criticized Christianity as being a crutch for weak people. Now this was before there was Facebook and Twitter. If there had been, the evangelical folks would have probably melted the internet with their comments. But there was a, a uproar, a, a firestorm of criticism and how awful he was in, in criticizing Christianity. And I thought, I don't think he went far enough. Christianity is not a crutch for weak people. It's a full-blown life support system for dead people. That's what it really is. He just didn't go far enough. You see, Christianity is not a self-help religion. Hey, let me give you some good ideas on how you can fix your marriage and be happier in marriage. Let me give you some tips on how to manage your business from God's Word so that you can be more successful. Let me give you a few tips on how you can be happier in your life because, you know, God spoke. Christianity is not even this. Here are some rules you can follow to make yourself pleasing to God. Christianity is a rescue religion that announces 
The Son of God Himself came to rescue you from spiritual death, from spiritual inability, from hopelessness. The Son of God came to bring you salvation from the wrath of God so you can know His peace. It's news. You didn't do it. Jesus did it. It's already been done and it's settled. It's just like the news report. You don't participate in the news. You just listen to it. In the same way, the announcement of the gospel is not something you participate in. You hear it and it unleashes. It is the power of God in your life to bring you spiritual life, declaring the victory of Jesus over sin and death brings spiritually dead people to life. That's what Paul is saying. Can you, you understand his confidence? Let me put some kind of feet on this. What are the implications? Why, why do you need to know this? Well, one, this is really how you measure what's going on in your church. Is the gospel and its announcement central to the things that are happening? If your church ministry doesn't orient around the announcement of Jesus' victory over sin and death, it's not really ministry. And it's certainly not accessing the power of God. This is how you get it. The power of God, Paul says, comes through announcing and talking about Jesus' victory over sin and death. That's it. Let me tell you how you know if you really believe that. What do you talk about? You know the old saying is, if you want to find what's important to a person, look at his checkbook. Look at his calendar. If you want to know what you really think about the, whether the gospel is the power of God, do you talk about it? If it's in your conversation regularly all the time, you're going to say, apparently I do. It's the power of God unleashed in my life and others. You know, I'll just tell you, just from a strictly mathematical point of view, I get about an hour and a half to open the Scriptures with you a week on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. But an hour and a half is not enough. It's not enough for us to have the power of God unleashed in our lives for that long. We want to talk about it. We want to announce it to each other. We want to talk about how it affects our lives. How we see the gospel coming to root in us. And as we do, as you talk about Jesus and His work over sin and over death, then you are actually bringing the power of God to bear on other people's lives as well as your own. That's what Paul says. You can see his confidence. So what is this gospel? I'm going to be brief because the rest of the book is about this. But look at verse 17. In it, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. And Martin Luther, for all his life, had heard that phrase and said it's the righteous standard of God. It's how perfect He is and it's on display in this Gospel. And you've got to rise to it. But then he saw what it really said. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's a funny phrase for us, but it really means like from faith at the beginning to faith at the end. That righteousness is really faith from start to finish. That righteousness comes from faith. 
Not from getting your act together. Not from becoming as moral as a person can be. Not from living up to God's standards. But from trusting. From actually believing in a righteousness that is a gift given to you. The righteous will live by faith. Not by obedience. Not by good works. Not by accomplishments. Not by religious actions. They will live. They will live. Remember, spiritual death is our problem. We hear the announcement of Christ's victory and now we trust it and we find life. A righteousness that is given to you who believe. It's a righteousness that saves you from sin. It's a righteousness that you didn't accomplish or do. To put it in very frank terms, children, listen, here's what it says. You have not obeyed God when it comes to obeying your parents. Every one of you, right? But Jesus obeyed His parents for you. And so God actually gives you that obedience that Jesus did in obeying His parents. Y'all, that's true about every point of our sin. The places where we lied, we get Jesus' honesty covering it. The places where we cover ourselves and do it falsely, we get the true covering of Jesus over us. The, the places where we have tried to make ourselves uh, you know, look better and we've become proud, we get Jesus' humility and it covers us. And it's given to those who believe. That is it. That is the Gospel. That you can be fully, completely, and utterly righteous before the true and living God by trusting. Uh, my favorite illustration of faith uh, comes from uh, early 20th century tightrope walker. His name was Blondin. And he strung a major tightrope across the Niagara River upstream from the falls. And if you've been there, it's a rushing river. I mean, there's... You're not getting out if you fall in. And he was an amazing tightrope walker. They set up, you know, uh, places for people to sit on either side of the, the English side and, or the American side, rather, and the Canadian side. And they would he would walk across while these crowds watched, and he would do tricks. He would go out and after he walked across once or twice, he'd sit out there on a chair, make himself a sandwich, read the newspaper. People thought it was an amazing scene. There was no net. He was risking death at every time he had crossed. And then, once he crossed over with a wheelbarrow full of bricks, which if you carried a wheelbarrow and you know heavy load, you just tipped a little bit and everything's over. And he was in such great balance, he carried a wheelbarrow full of bricks over. And as he landed on the ground, the crowd erupted into great cheers. And so he looked at them and he said, Who of you thinks I can carry a man across? The crowd went crazy. How awesome would that be? Yes, we believe. Who will get in? Who will be the man I take? Silence. His manager got in. He took him across. Successfully to the other side. What I want you to see is the Gospel is this. Jesus says, which of you believes I can bring a man to God and make him righteous? 
who will go with me? And if you trust him, he will make you righteous. And that is all there is to it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want you to make us righteous. And the truth is, there is no way that will happen by our own works. Our good works can never do that. Our good works can never satisfy your demands. We could never confess enough. We could never repent enough. We could never, ever meet your righteous demands. And so Jesus met them for us. And then He gives us righteousness. Freely offered in the Gospel. Your righteousness that's revealed and is received by faith at the beginning and by faith at the end so that we will live our whole lives by faith. Grant us that faith and may Christ make us righteous. We pray in His name. Amen.